eviction of pigs and pig stories. Put it bluntly, in some schools, the story of the three little pigs is no more. Banned. Banned from the schools because Muslim children might be offended by the stories of unclean animals. The trend reached its silliest moment when the Council of Dudley in Worcester banned all images, any kind of representation of a pig from its benefits department on the grounds that Muslims coming in might be offended. Calendars with pigs, porcelain pig figurines, even a pig-shaped stress releaser were removed. Even a tissue box depicting Winnie the Pooh and Piglet were removed from the offices. We may laugh at this outrageous political correctness of our culture, and yet it has tremendous impact on our lives and on our church. D.A. Carson, in a book entitled The Intolerance of Tolerance, writes about how the definition of tolerance has changed over the years, the more recent years. He summarizes the change in the definition, saying the shift from accepting the existence of different views to the acceptance of different views, or from recognizing that other people's rights to have a different belief or view to accepting the different views of other people. It's subtle sometimes, and yet massive in its substance. To accept that someone has a different view, or maybe opposing view from you or from me, is one thing. But it's another thing to accept that position itself. Thomas Hembach, Executive Vice President of the Lambda Chi Alpha Fraternity, writes, the definition of new tolerance is that every individual's beliefs, values, lifestyle, and perception of truth claims are true. Listen to what they're saying. Everyone's beliefs, values, lifestyles, perception of truth are equal. There's no hierarchy of truth. Your beliefs and my beliefs are equal. And all truth is relative. All truth is relative. We see that so much in our culture today. Carson responds to that and says, if, however, this new tolerance evaluates all values and beliefs as positions worthy of respect, one may ask if this includes Nazism, or Stalinism, or child sacrifice, or, for that matter, the stances of the Ku Klux Klan and other ethnic supremacist groups. I think he gets his point across. There are definitely beliefs and values that are wrong. All values and lifestyles and beliefs are not equal. There is absolute truth. And God's word is so very clear about that. Remove 
from allowing free expression of people's differing views to accept, to basically, essentially accepting these views based on this new tolerance. Essentially, we're saying that all beliefs are equally valid. And it's sad, but already in many countries, I've seen stories of Germany, Great Britain, Canada, Australia, where pastors are being called, called before the court because they've spoken against homosexuality. Or they have, in a way that Islamic people didn't care for, compared and contrasted the two different religions of Christianity and Islam. Truly, it seems that we are headed for dark days in the expression of God's Word. As we continue our series today on the seven churches in the book of Revelation, called out to shine, we look at the third letter, the letter to the church in Pergamum, a city referred to as a dwelling place of Satan, as a place of darkness, different from our culture today, but yet many similarities. Unfortunately, the believers at Pergamon did not rise to the occasion and shine brightly for Christ in the midst of everything. They allowed their witness to the city to become no more than a flicker because they were willing to see to compromise, to tolerate false teaching. Like many of us, at different times, they fell to one of Satan's schemes of attacking believers, compromise. We need to allow Christ's words to the church at Pergamon regarding compromise and tolerance or false teaching to impact our own hearts and our own lives. Pergamon was known as a flourishing center for pagan worship. It's set on a hill really high, I think maybe a thousand feet high, and across the way were various temples to, to pagan gods. There were many. There's one to Zeus, one to Athena, one to Asclepius, one to the various different rulers. Undoubtedly, the city was saturated with idolatry and satanic influence. Zeus, the savior god, had an enormous altar as well as a temple. It was shaped, many say, like a throne. And some would say that in this letter later on that, that the Christ was referring to the throne of Zeus as being the throne for Satan. But no one really knows. It's probably a combination of all these various pagan temples and idols. Last week, we looked at the church at Smyrna, a church that... Christ gave no criticism to. It was a church, though, that was persecuted. A church that Christ said that those who were persecuting the Christ followers came out of the synagogue of Satan. The church at Pergamon faced prosecution, or persecution, rather, in a similar way. Well, as with each of the seven letters to the seven churches, Christ first presents his credentials. He identifies who he is. And with each church, as he identifies himself, as he gives description of who he is, 
key to that description is the answer for the church's problem. Revelation 2.12 says, This is a message from the one with the sharp, two-edged sword. I've got to think that each of us probably immediately thought of Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's God's word. It's God's word that cuts to the core of our very being, our thinking, our motivation. It's God's word must be our standard for life, not what the world says is politically correct. It's God's word. Well, after identifying himself, Christ first commends the church there in Pergamon. He says, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, and yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me, even when Antipas was martyred for his faith. In the midst of persecution, not everyone, though, at the church was faithful. After commending the church, Christ condemns, he criticizes the church for compromising with the world, his tolerance with false teachers. Verses 14 and 15, we read, But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have allowed the Nicolaitans among you to follow the same teaching. There were some in the church who held to the false teaching of, of Balaam, the Nicolaitans. Balaam was a false prophet in the Old Testament seen in Numbers, maybe some other books too. We influenced this pagan king, Balak, who, who was scared of the nation of Israel. He wasn't able to defeat them. And so he went to Balaam and used him. We saw last week that one of Satan's primary strategies is to crush Christ's believers. In spite of the persecution, the church at Pergamon remained true to Christ. They did not deny the faith. And when Christ was unable to crush the church at Pergamon, using the government, using the Roman government, he used another strategy, deception. It's clear that the church at Pergamon was slowly drifting into worldliness and carnality. It was beginning to compromise. It did it already began. It, it tolerated those in the fellowship who were following the false teaching of Balaam. Again, Balaam was hired by this pagan king, Balak. He was greedy. Balaam did this because he wanted money. He hired him
He hired him. Is it working now? Obeyum, as I said, was hired. No? Balaam was hired. Could you turn this off and speak without it? Okay. invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down thank you to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself with Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was coming against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun in daylight when everyone can see before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Well, Balak and Balaam couldn't crush, you couldn't curse Israel, but they were able to deceive them. Numbers 31 summarizes Balaam's actions. Moses said to them, Have you read all the women love? They're the ones that caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. And so the plague came among the congregation, where 24,000 were killed. Now therefore kill every male among the real ones, and kill every woman who has no man by lying with him. The doctrine of Baal was to persuade people, God's people, there's all light. There's all light. 
to compromise God's standards. They even commit provocation, sexual immorality, with their idol worshiping enemies. Christ links the Nicolaitans to the teaching of Balaam. They also led God's people into immorality, into wickedness. They assaulted the church with sensual temptations. Clement of Alexander, early church father, says they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. Their teaching perverted God's grace and placed liberty with license. The teachings of these two groups led to compromise with the world, friendship with the enemy, acceptance of the culture around them. It's almost like they will worship God on Sunday, but live like the world. The sad thing is, is the teaching of these two groups is still very much alive and well today in the world. I think it's easy for us as Christ followers to attempt to make friends with the world. And sometimes in the midst of it, we're too willing to compromise. And at times, fall and worship at the world's altar. And some remain loyal. But these followers compromise their faith. And Proverbs 14 12 says, There's a way that seems right to man, but in his end leads to death. And I think today, as we live in our world, with a culture so filled with, with the media, with, with marketing, with all these various things, and there's that stress continually to conform. And I think we see that these people, they embrace the world's mindset. So some of you hold to these teachings of Balaam. And there's an old saying that, that some of you may have heard, you can't beat them, join them. In other words, if your enemies are stronger, it's better to join in with them. Maybe for Balaam, that quote might be changed if you can't curse them, corrupt them. But in, in the long run, in the end, the end justified the means for them. Not only did they embrace the world's mindset, they embraced the world's religion around them, they were willing to eat the food sacrificed to idols in these festivals and practice the sexual morality that went along with it. You know, idolatry is deceptive. It comes quietly. Idolatry is demonic. It separates us from God. Idolatry is deadly. It always destroys. Not only do these people accept the world's standards, the world's religion, they accepted the world's morals because it says that they're involved in, in, involved in sexual immorality, even though 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and many other verses say free from sexual immorality. And finally, they employed the world's methods. Matthew 7, 15 says, the very false prophets who come in to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are wilderness wolves. When someone comes in, they're not going to look like 
or wolf. They don't look like an angel of the Lord. And they're going to talk about Jesus. They're going to probably quote some scripture. We need to know what God's word says. So we can be aware of it. I truly believe that many in the world today are, are, are lost, not, not lost in the sense of they may be believers, but they're lost in confusion as they go through life because they don't have a Christian worldview. There's one thing to be able to, to know what God's word says, to be able to quote some scripture. I was on the phone a few weeks ago, someone called. Santa gave me the phone call. It was a guy who was, was uh, very articulate. He knew what God's word says. But he wanted to argue with me about the Trinity. He knew what God's word said. And I told him, I said, Sir, you're not going to change my mind. And I'm not going to change your mind. So it's a need for us to have a discussion. And I hung up. You see, we need not just to be reading God's Word, we need to know how God's Word applies to our life in general. We need to have a Christian worldview. As we go into schools and universities, we know what God's Word says. We can withstand that pressure to conform. We go to our offices. We know what God's word says. And therefore, we stand strong. Because we know that God is the creator of all things. He created us for purpose and for reason. To serve Him, to live for Him. And to serve Him, we're at light that we're talking about. Shining in darkness. But we need not just to know God's word, but we need to have. A Christian worldview. If there's anything that characterizes life today in our culture is sexuality. You see it in marketing, you see it in the media, you see it in our speech. It's central to our culture. And it was central to the culture there in Pergamon. Today, just as there was pressure for those people to compromise. There's pressure for us to compromise, to moderate our walk with God. As you think about two approaches, which is easier to stand up to, to recognize outright persecution, a slow erosion of our values. It's like the example of the very fog. I've never tried this, but I've heard that people have tried it. The fog in the kettle. Put a fog in hot boiling water and you'll hop out. But put a fog in cold water, it'll burn on, <coughs> excuse me, and let it begin to boil. The fog stays in. The fog stays in and becomes dinner for someone. In the same way, study after study shows that we as Christians too often live lives so similar 
to non-believers. Drinking habits. God's word says, do not be drunk with wine. I hear stories about believers doing that. Abortion. More and more I hear people, well, no, it's okay. Divorce. And yes, God clearly gives cases for divorce. But the institution of marriage is a picture of our relationship to Christ. And it shouldn't be broken quickly. Living together. Pornography. Homosexuality. I can go down the list of various things. Too often we, the church, try to read the world. If we were to study and observe the world, if the world begins to change its definition of family, sooner or later, the church follows behind. I can't remember the product that was being advertised during the Olympics. <clears throat> but if you remember, so very subtle, they talk about how families have changed. And they showed pictures of, of, of different types of families, including homosexual couples. And more and more, there's an acceptance of those kind of things. The same thing with our views of, of men, our views of women, even on the list. We become infatuated with entertainment because the world is. We become materialistic because the world is. I think at times we believe that if the world likes us, they're like our Savior. That's not true. Bonner Research reported in 2011 that America is essentially split down the middle on most issues dealing with salvation, with universalism, where all are saved, and religious pluralism. For example, 43% of Americans said it doesn't matter what religious faith you follow because they all teach the same lessons. Half of Americans, 50%, believe that all people will eventually be saved or accepted by God no matter what they do. We can see that from the text that again that not all of these people in the church at Pergamon were compromising. Verse two thirteen says, You hold fast to my name. You do not deny my faith in the days when Antipas was killed for his faith. It was indicative of the church as a whole, but the church for the most part was faithful, well it's right doctrine. But but they tolerated these false teachers. They compromised. They knew these false teachers were leading people astray, and they did nothing about it. Revelation 2.14 says, You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. They did what culture does today. It tends to dictate they exercised indiscriminate tolerance. Sometimes we think the word discriminate is bad, and it can be in certain cases, but we're called to discriminate. We're called to see what the differences in things are. And here, they were indiscriminate in their tolerance. Sometimes the mindset of our culture 
is that trauma somehow equals spirituality and godliness. People are very bristled at the thought of accountability. Many think that church discipline is not needed. And you'll see in the media reports where churches are disciplining. And the media just hits it big. And yet, church leaders who uphold discipline are not only doing their jobs, but they're following the instruction and example of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 deals with a passage that, that I think probably many of us are familiar with. It says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. This is Paul talking to the church there in Corinth. There's immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his wife, has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, and are you proud of this? Are you not? One? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that your leaven leavens the whole lump? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning uh, the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you need to leave the world. Verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother, who bears the name of Jesus Christ, if he's guilty of sexual immorality, or of greed, or of an adulterer, or a violent, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, not even to eat with such a one. We know and I know that this goes so against our mindset. It goes totally against that political correct world around us. That of tolerance. It's easy to do what we feel is right. But God's word is clear what we should do. Revelation 2, 16 says, Therefore, repent. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember earlier I mentioned that when Christ introduced himself, gave his credentials, he says, I'm the one with a sharp, two-edged sword. There's a way out of this situation for the church at Pergamon. Christ's corruption and his warning of judgment were there. Repent. The church had not removed these false teachers. They were guilty of tolerating false teaching within the church. Christ strengthens his threat of punishment by saying, I will come soon. And they war against them with a sword with my mouth. The church at Pergamon 
We need to repent. We need to acknowledge the wrong and turn from the sin toward Christ by rebuking the false teachers and the followers. The entire church faced Christ's punishment, a judgment, the false teachers for teaching and practicing their heresy, and for the rest of the church for tolerating it. The church cannot tolerate evil in any form. In error, in theology and doctrine, will never be suppressed by compromise. As I look around this in other churches, I see today compromise within churches. I think there's a church, not good years, but church within the United States and and Western world face judgment because of it. Well, always, as Christ ends letters to each of these seven cities, these seven letters, he closes with words of comfort. He closes with words of comfort. Revelation 2.17 says, Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give each one a white stone and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. But the church has stood strong in the midst of the persecution. They've overcome those external pressures. They've been faithful to God's word, not denying Christ. But they failed to confront these false teachers. It was an internal problem that they had. There's an internal problem. See, sometimes the pressure to compromise isn't from the outside. Sometimes it's from the inside. But Christ says to those who are victorious, He's promised you three things. One, it's a hidden manna. Two, the white stone. And three, a new name. But first, the hidden manna that you probably are all familiar with, that honey-flavored bread that God fed the nation of Israel during their 40 years of wandering. According to Exodus 16.33, there's a nation where to memorialize God's provision by keeping a jar of manna inside of the Ark of the Covenant during their travels. This hidden manna represents Jesus Christ, the bread who came down from heaven. He's the sustenance for all who put their faith in him. This hidden manna symbolizes all the blessings and the benefits of Lord Jesus Christ. First, those who overcome will receive the hidden manna, sustenance. The Christians, it's interesting, the Christians at Pergamon were told to avoid eating the meat offered to idols in order that they may receive 
the heavenly manna, the sustenance found in Christ Jesus alone. Secondly, the white stone. The public speaks of seven different views on this white stone, but I think probably the best option seems to, to see the white stone in light of the Roman custom of awarding athletes stones. Um, who won. And the stones with the names inscribed on them were like an entrance into the festivals, the, the celebrations, the victory festivals, if you will. In this view, the white stone represents Christ's promise to those who overcome the entrance into eternal victory, celebration in heaven. The third is the new name written on the stone which no one knows but the one who receives it. The new name will serve each believer's serve as each believer's admission pass into eternity. It will be uniquely uh, reflecting God's love and adoption into God's uh, family. Well, the church at Pergamon can be compared to the church today in so many ways. We face tremendous stress, pressure to conform to the world around us. The world is quickly, very, very quickly, to respond and to, to try to force and conform us into what they think we should be. They're quick to give us their feedback on which preachers are correct. Should we not face the persecution of the church there in Pergamon, but we do have a secular society that places that pressure to compromise, to conform, to be tolerant. Syncretism exists today in similar ways as in the church at Pergamon. It's so easy for us to water down our theology. It's so easy to want to have this feel good theology. I remember as a non believer growing up in Alabama, and of course, all the churches around me pretty much were Baptist and Methodist. And I remember thinking as I was involved in a, a life of sin, I would, I'd love to be a, a Catholic so I could just go and confess my sins and be over with. God calls us to live in a life of holiness. Life in itself is hard. I've talked with several people this week. There's several of us this time is going through a lot. There's several of us who have health issues with someone in the family. There's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Life can be hard. Life can be tough. And there are days when you feel like staying in bed. And it's easy in the midst of day-to-day -day life to want this feel-good theology. But remember what God's Word says. Remember, 
how Christ identified himself up front. He was the one with a sharp two-edged sword. The Word of God must be our standard for life as individuals and as a congregation. We can't compromise. We can't tolerate sin within the church. We can't tolerate false teaching. Christ warned the church at Pergamon against assimilation, against compromise. And although the, the issue of persecution is central when you look at the book of, of, uh, of Revelation, Rather, it warns against assimilation. It warns against compromise with the world. We need to be careful to distinguish between a perfect interaction with the world and compromise with it. Compromising has devastating results, and we must guard against that. Compromise never because quickly, I don't care what the sin is. I think the men were often been told, and so they're true. It begins with a second glance, and it leads to flirtation. Then that first touch, and finally that fatal plunge into unfaithfulness. It's true with, with everything, isn't it? We don't just wake up one day and believe a lie. We toy with it in the midst of life. With its struggles, with its temptations, with, it, with, with hurt and with confusion. We begin to be open. As we talk with good friends who are beginning to change their views. Compromise never occurs quickly. It always lowers the original standard. Compromise never exalts. It only lowers. It never uplifts. It always tears down. It's inevitable that compromise eventually leads to sin and to guilt. Sin and guilt. We've all sinned in different ways and different levels. And when we sin, the Spirit of God, in a gentle way, says, Well, you sinned. He calls our names. And we feel the guilt. Compromise with God's standards always leads to sin and to guilt. It's often the first step toward fatal disobedience. And we've all heard this thing before too. Compromise is like a slippery slope. Once you start sliding, it's difficult. It's difficult to stop. But I'm saying to us today, because we have God's word, because if we believe we have the Spirit of God living within us, we're able to stop. We can stop. 
If you find yourself today slipping, look, look for God's mercy. Repent. Claim His forgiveness. And ask God to renew us. Well, let's play.